You're listening to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast. I'm Matt Sardo. And I am Ibrahim Hines. Today, our podcast is about Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. We will briefly explain Section 230 and its history, and then speak with Professor Pamela Samuelson of Berkeley Law. Suppose a malevolent ex-boyfriend sets up a fake dating profile on Grindr on your behalf. It contains entirely false statements about you, specifically claiming that you're interested in a variety of lewd and lascivious acts that you by no means are intrigued by. Outraged, you decide to sue. You not only take your ex-boyfriend to court for defamation, but you also sue Grindr for failing to take down the false and reputation-damaging profile. Does Grindr face any liability for allowing this fake profile to stay up on its site? What about for failing to protect its users from fake profiles? In 2011, the Southern District Court of New York considered this exact situation in Herrick v. Grindr. Relying on Section 230, the court held that Grindr was, quote, under no obligation to search for and remove the impersonating profiles, end quote. Why not? What is it about Section 230 that gives Grindr protection from liability in this case? And what is the significance of Section 230 on how internet content is regulated at the federal level? The intent of the authors of Section 230, Democratic Senator Ron Wyden and Republican Congressman Christopher Cox, was to, quote, protect online speech, allow innovation, and encourage companies to develop their own content moderation processes, end quote. Section 230 has been coined the 26 words that created the internet by legal scholar Jeff Kossoff. The statute reads in relevant part, quote, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, end quote. In a nutshell, the law protects tech companies from legal liability for user content on internet-based platforms. At the time of Section 230's adoption, dial-up modems brought AOL instant messaging into American homes. Now in 2021, technology is dramatically different and politicians are considering updating the law. Both Democrats and Republicans across the United States express interest in amending internet platform content moderation laws. Republicans argue that conservative voices are silenced by big tech, while Democrats decry online hate speech that fuels real-life violence but does not result in liability for hosting platforms. Recently, this law has become a topic of political controversy. This single statute has consistently been lauded as underpinning the modern internet economy. But how does the law actually work? How does it prevent platform liability? How does it impact the individual, and how do private companies hold the power to moderate public figures? Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Professor Pamela Samuelson to the podcast to answer these questions and discuss Section 230 with us. Professor Samuelson is the Richard M. Sherman Distinguished Professor of Law and Information at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law, and the co-director of the internationally renowned Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. Our Meg Sullivan and Seth Bertolucci 
dig into Section 230 with Professor Samuelson, discussing the intent of the initial legislation, judicial interpretation of the statute over the last 25 years, how Section 230 has encouraged the growth of the internet economy, and the unintended consequences and controversy of shielded platform liability. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So could you talk to us um, and tell us a bit about what actually is Section 230, and could you explain it to us as if we're in high school? So Section 230 uh, is part of the Telecommunications and Communications Law title of uh, the U.S. Code, Um, and uh, although it's often known as uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, That's not really accurate, but uh, it is what it's uh, very commonly known by. Uh, What happened was that uh, the bill that was originally known as the Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act got bundled with the Communications Decency Act, uh, and then that got uh, bundled in the 1996 uh, Telecommunications uh, Revision to the Communications Act. So... Um, it's like a little law inside a bigger law inside of a bigger law um, uh, when it was uh, adopted uh, in the mid-1990s. Uh, so here's my example uh, of, uh, anybody can understand this. Uh, so uh, suppose that Seth um, is the webmaster for a club uh, and the club has uh, several dozen uh, members and one of the members basically posts something uh, saying, oh, come to my event uh, to celebrate something or other. And then somebody else who's a member of the club gets on, uh, on that same website and says, Joe's a thief. You shouldn't go to his event. He's awful. Um, and so if it's not true that Joe's a thief, then that's defamation. And the person who said the defamatory thing can be held liable for it. But neither Seth nor the club can be held liable for um, uh, the defamatory statement because um, he wasn't uh, the speaker or the publisher. So it's basically a rule that says that, uh, that content that you didn't publish or that you didn't utter yourself um, is, uh, is not speech for which you can be held liable even if the content, in fact, is illegal. Does that help? Yeah. Thank you so much. Seriously. And it's reassuring to know, uh, as the webmaster of my own club online, um, that I won't be held liable for that content. Um, now, I know, and that might be changing soon. Because, uh, Professor, you know, I know a lot of people are talking about repealing 230 lately. Um, and intuitively, it seems that uh, if online platforms... Um, could be held liable for what gets posted on their platforms, that they might actually be um, more aggressive at censoring content. But is that an accurate uh, is that an accurate consequence of of repealing two thirty, or is that more of a misconception that people might have? Well, if Section two thirty is repealed, there will still be a First Amendment right that platforms have to take down information that they object to for one reason or another. So uh, the First Amendment is kind of a backup protection. 
But what's different is that Section 230 um, uh, enables a company that is challenged um, with some user infringement or some user activity that's uh, that's illegal. Um, uh, they they basically um, uh, can get out of a lawsuit um, on a motion to dismiss. Right. So if the case, if, if t- Section 230 allows the is repealed, then the lawsuits could go ahead. Now, you still have to prove that somebody actually sort of contributed to or knew about or did something wrong. But uh, the ex- expectation of people who've been studying this uh, is that it's pretty likely that especially the small and medium sized platforms uh, will decide to take down content that um, somebody complains about um, because it's risky to keep it up, right? If, if somebody's right that that stuff is defamatory, then I could be held liable for it. So I don't want to do that. Uh, so I'll take it down. Uh, unfortunately, that means that probably more people who want to silence critics will make complaints, whether they're valid complaints or not, uh, that would uh, then... Um, mean that some of the content that would be truthful um, and uh, actually something that you'd want to have up uh, would be taken down. So that's the that's one of the risks. Why was Section 230 passed? What were the fears around the internet at that time and kind of the motivation uh, to shield these companies from liability for content that, that users post? So the big concern, actually, in the mid-1990s was about children and children getting exposed to indecent things on the Internet. Um, and uh, there, was, there were two different ideas uh, about how to deal with that. One was uh, uh, Senator Exxon's bill that would make it uh, criminally uh, liable for anybody to uh, essentially say indecent things on the internet, and you could go to prison for uh, for two years. Okay, um, so that's like penalize uh, anybody who's saying indecent things that might harm children, um, and then uh, you know send them to jail. Um, and the representatives Cox and Wyden had a different idea. So the reason that the bill is called the Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act was that they had the idea that families could basically buy software that would protect the children and that some parents are going to be more liberal and some more conservative. And so there would be like competition in the market for software to protect children. Okay, and so you wanted actually to encourage the content moderation, um, the, the case is actually, or the, the statute is actually um, a response to the Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy case, uh, which was decided by a New York judge um, a couple of years before this uh, bill got, uh, got uh, proposed, uh, where Prodigy said, hey, we're family friendly and we're making sure that nobody's going to say anything bad. Um, And so um, uh, on one of their uh, chat sites, uh, there was um, uh, a criticism and a charge that that Stratton Oakmont was uh, committing fraud. And 
Stratton Oakmont sued Prodigy saying, you know, you publish this and you say that you are, you know, controlling what's going on in your platform. And Prodigy couldn't get out of the case, uh, even though no one at Prodigy actually knew about the defamatory statement that was that had been made um, because they exercised editorial control over the um, uh, what went on on their site. And they said that they had these policies that would protect people from defamation and other kinds of wrongful uh, content. If you exercise any editorial control at all, right, do any kind of content moderation, the Stratton Oakmont case suggested that uh, you'd have to do, uh, that, you'd, that you'd be liable if you didn't find something. So, you know, the content moderation at scale problem is really huge. Um, even back then, Prodigy had, you know, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands uh, of, uh, of, of people who were subscribers. And you just right, can't, so. you can't actually um, see everything that's getting posted before, um, uh, before it goes online. So um, what Wyden and Cox wanted to do is to make sure that if the companies, uh, if the platforms actually took stuff down, that they wouldn't be held liable. Um, and if they didn't take it down, that they could keep it up or take it down, but they wanted people to ga- engage in, in, uh, in content moderation uh, and not be held liable if they missed something. So if I'm understanding it right, Section 230, a lot of the motivation be- behind Cox and Wyden was to empower uh, private companies basically to make the internet safer, to make it better without facing liability. That's exactly right. Also, they wanted to, to encourage uh, the growth of the internet economy, right? At the time, the, you know, Prodigy was one of the few companies that, uh, that was pro- providing um, internet access and content, um, user-posted content, uh, but, um, but they saw the potential for that to grow into a major industry, which of course it has. How have uh, the aims of Section 230 or the way that it's been used change? How have um, those aims changed in the 20 plus years since it was passed? Well, I think that the people who are upset about, um, about Section 230 right now uh, are not upset about it because of uh, indecent things getting uh, exposed to children. Uh, so um that's not the sort of the main uh, driving uh, concern, and that Communications Decency Act rule uh, that uh, would penalize, right, would create a criminal liability if you knowingly transmitted uh, indecent co- uh, content over the internet that would be uh, that children would be uh, in the audience for. Um, that got overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, right? It struck it down as unconstitutional uh, because it was too much of a uh, of a penalty on uh, on 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 lawful speech by uh, by adults. So uh, so the 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 CDA actually got essentially um, repealed uh, or overturned by the Supreme Court, and what was left was uh, was Section two hundred and thirty. So I think that. Um, Cox and Wyden have actually come out and still uh, very supportive of the law. Uh, they say, take a look at the internet economy now, right? 10% of, uh, of GDP is actually internet commerce. Um, and so 
the one of the aspirations to enable the the uh, internet companies to thrive um, has been uh, has been achieved. And uh, in a recent uh, exchange, um, uh, former Representative Cox uh, said. 200 million websites in the United States depend on Section 230. Uh, so uh, it really isn't just about big tech companies. It's actually about um, uh, everyone. And you want people to engage in content moderation. So that second uh, of the um, uh, aspirations for Section 230, um, which is to in- encourage companies to engage in content moderation, that's also happening. Maybe it's not happening perfectly. Maybe some people, uh, maybe some companies um, are maybe taking a little bit too much of an advantage of, uh, of Section 230. Uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, the kind of encourage content moderation, every site uh, engages in content moderation that hosts user content. They have to. How has the judicial interpretation of Section 230 over the past 20 so years um, affected you know, the way in which it applies to the internet today? And, and also, how has that interpretation changed over time? So what the Section 230 says uh, is that interactive computer services um, will not be treated as speakers uh, or as publishers of information content provided by third parties. Okay? Now, if you defame somebody because you call them a thief, you're the speaker and you can be held liable. Somebody who basically is, um, let's say a newspaper who published, oh, Joe's a thief, that would be a publisher who can be held liable because the publisher basically disseminates the, the defamatory thing. So the interpretation that's been given to it is that you're not a publisher and you're not a speaker uh, of the defamatory or otherwise unlawful content that's provided by this third party. So if you get sued for it, as if you are a speaker or a publisher, you can basically move to dismiss the complaint uh, for failure to state a claim um, and get out of the case that way. And uh, the overwhelming majority of the courts and there have been hundreds and hundreds of Section 230 cases. Uh, they just throw it out. Uh, now, there is a third kind of liability that's possible, um, uh, and that's distributor liability. So if you are a distributor of, let's say, obscene books, if you know that there are obscene books in your store, you can be held liable for obscenity like the publisher and like the author. But you have to know. And, you know, one of the things that could happen is that courts could basically decide that these platforms, once they get notice about some unlawful content, that they could be held liable as distributors. Once they know, then they might have an obligation to take the stuff down. Um, that's a, a theory that uh, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas uh, 
issued as in a statement in relation to uh, the denial of a cert petition in a case involving Section 230, but of a different sort. So he's basically put back into the conversation the possibility of distributor liability um, for um, uh, for content that is on a site that's wrongful um, and that the um, person could have taken it down but chose not to. Thank you for that context. And I, I think that that segues really well with our next question. Um, uh, I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about the Zoran case um, and how that fits into uh, our conversation. Well, poor Ken Zoran, um, who wasn't even on AOL um, as, a, as a user, some person uh, decided to post something uh, as if Ken Zoran was um, uh, was uh, selling T-shirts that glorified the Oklahoma City bombing by um, Timothy McVeigh, um, and uh, they didn't use Zoran's last name, but they said, "If you want some of these T-shirts, uh, call Ken at this number." which was his number. So all of a sudden, he starts getting all these calls um, and death threats and people you know, um, just treating him terribly. And he's very, very upset, as you can understand. So he contacts people at AOL uh, several times and says, look, this is, this is up on your site. It's not accurate. Um, uh, somebody's doing something really terrible and they're ruining my life and I'm, I'm, I feel at risk of, of, of losing my life. Um, please take it down. And he was given some reassurances that they would take it down, but they didn't. So he kept getting this and finally he uh, talked to a lawyer and the lawyer basically then um, brought a lawsuit. Now the cause of action uh, was uh, negligence, right? The theory was that the, um, that once AOL had said, uh, had gotten notice about this and had reassured him that it was negligent for them not to have taken it down. Um, and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals basically said, look, the reason Congress passed Section 230 was to protect AOL like companies uh, from lawsuits for a content that was provided by a third party. And it doesn't make any difference what the cause of action is in your complaint. You're trying to evade the very uh, limitation on liability that Congress intended for entities like AOL. And Zoran, had a good analysis, and almost all the cases since then have followed Zoran and uh, endorsed its ruling. I mean, can you tell us of maybe one more notable example, just going beyond Zoran, um, of Section 230 protecting a company you know that chose not to take down content that was really controversial, obscene, defamatory? And I guess this isn't much of a question because specifically, I'm I'm wondering about the the Grinder case. Yeah. That's one I was going to talk about. So um, there was a young man named uh, Herrick, and he had been in a gay relationship with um, 
uh, this other person. And the other person, uh, after they broke up, uh, uh, posted um, a profile purporting to be a profile of Herrick on Grindr, a gay dating site. Um, and it said a bunch of things about his willingness to engage in certain kind of sexual conduct um, and um, uh, basically a peop- gave information about how to contact him and where he was employed. And so he was really, um, uh, you know, he's being besieged, kind of like uh, not exactly the same as Zaran, but the point is that people were like, oh, I want to, you know, I would get together with you. I, I like that kind of sex too. Uh, and, um, and, and Herrick basically said to Grinder, look, that isn't a profile of me. That's basically my vengeful boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, uh, who's done this to me. Uh, take that down. And Grinder chose not to. So that's an example of something where, you know, somebody was really harmed. The... I think a responsible um, uh, way to deal with that would have been to basically take down uh, the profile or basically say that, you know, this is uh, this is inaccurate and it's not really about this guy, you know, put some sort of warning on it. Um, uh, but of course, taking it down would have been the better thing to do. And they just didn't. So, um, uh, so Herrick brought a, a lawsuit against uh, Grindr um, and charged that the, uh, that the um, that grinder uh, should be held strictly liable for the um, for the uh, harm that had been done to Herrick uh, because it designed its platform in a way that really um, encouraged or enabled this kind of activity to happen. Court threw it out. That's really incredible that in both of those examples, even after being directly notified. Uh, the, the, the platforms still had no legal liability. Um, but uh, moving on uh, from that, uh, one more question uh, that we have uh, sort of relates to uh, the politics around Section 230. Uh, so Democrats are talking about changing Section 230. Republicans are talking about changing it. Um, but would reforming Section 230 be a bipartisan initiative? And uh, do both of those parties want the same things out of reform? The answer is they don't want the same thing. Um, uh, in general, the, um, uh, the, the Republican uh, critics of Section 230 think that these platforms are taking down too much. Um, a lot of the hate speech um, and disinformation uh, that the platforms have been taking down lately um, are things that um, they think are constitutionally protected speech and that it shouldn't be taken down because of the, uh, the lawfulness of that speech. Um, and the, they don't want content moderation to take down uh, anything that's constitutionally protected speech. Um, the Democrats, for the most part, say you're not taking down enough. Uh, so they want um, uh, they want sort of more due process, and they want um, uh, to encourage more of that uh, takedown. Uh, so that makes them at loggerheads. Now maybe they could agree on repeal, uh, but I doubt it. Um, uh, I think there is going to be enough. Democratic support, especially given that that this law affects 200 million websites, 
that's actually enough to maybe say, um, uh, maybe we should tweak it, but maybe repeal is not the right, uh, right thing to do. So um, uh, I think the uh, Senator Warner's uh, most recent bill uh, that was uh, introduced recently kind of tries to aim at uh, fraud and extremism and hate speech and uh, kind of identifies what harmful speech is being um, uh, promoted on some of these, uh, especially the social media platforms, and then says, you know, um, uh, they need to do more to take it down. Uh, so we'll see whether that gets any traction, uh, but there's not going to be Republican support for that because they have a different point of view. Of course. Um, and, and well, I'd be curious to hear, do you agree with uh, Senator Warner's uh, policy objectives? Um, or perhaps a bo- broader question would be, um, what do you view as the best way to fix Section 230? I think that the best thing that um, the Biden administration could do is basically set up a commission to study kind of the pros and cons, um, and to come up with a recommendation uh, for change. I think that if you go through this kind of like, oh, there's this terrible stuff out there, and you don't kind of take a look at the how the whole um, ecosystem is operating, you can make a bad decision by, you know, trying to sort of tweak this and have all kinds of unintended consequences, particularly for the small and medium platforms the big platforms are going to be able to survive no matter what, right? So Facebook, for example, has come out, oh, we're in favor of government regulation. Well, you know, the thing is that they benefited tremendously uh, by the existence of Section 230 when they were little guys. So now they want to pull the ladder up behind them and make it harder uh, for the small and medium-sized firms to uh, to compete and to grow into real competitors with them. Uh, so that's why I'm, uh, I'm concerned about sort of, you know, too many kind of like, oh, oh, there's too much, you know, hate speech. So uh, let's take away this uh, immunity. I just think that's, a, that's the wrong attitude. Something that could be done apart from a commission, I've uh, suggested uh, that maybe the Federal Trade Commission could start a new bureau of platform regulation uh, and could do for um, kind of content moderation, create some best practices or work with the sort of the industry to come up with some best practices that would be um, uh, a way of encouraging more really meaningful self-regulation. The FTC's done that uh, to a a substantial degree for privacy and for cybersecurity. Uh, So I think that they could also uh, try to um, uh, do some oversight. And then if they decide that additional legislation is needed, they can recommend it. But I don't want these senators who really don't know enough about uh, the sort of the internet ecosystem to be kind of doing these big broad brush uh, changes that actually will have negative effects. It, it's fascinating to hear how you know even a little tweak to the law could have huge and uh, you know often unintended consequences that Congress often often misses. Um, and and the policy around this whole issue is is fascinating, and I could talk about it all day. We're pushing up on the time limit 
And so I, I want to ask you just one kind of final follow-up question. Um, you're a very influential scholar in copyright law, and that's you know kind of your bread and butter and a huge part of your background. Um, do you feel that Section 230 kind of relates to copyright or is its own is it its own thing? You know, and if it does relate to copyright, um, how so? And what's kind of led you down this new scholarly path? Well, the reason that I chose to teach this class um, on regulating internet platforms with a focus on Section 230 was because of the pandemic and the desire to do something that would be uh, helpful for 1L students uh, coming in uh, to make them feel like, um, you know, the school really cares about them. Um, I knew that there was a, a little bit of controversy about Section 230, but I hadn't, I hadn't taught, I used to teach cyber law, but I hadn't taught it in a long time. So there was a lot to catch up on. Um, so uh, what I look at, though, is that both uh, the internet um, uh, Section 230 uh, intermediary rules and the, the Section 512 copyright rules um, have been shielding these platforms from liability. So if they didn't contribute to it, they didn't know about it, they had no control over it, I don't see why they should be held liable for it. Um, and that's a, a, that's a norm that, that underpins both of them. Now, I think that, uh, generally speaking, copyright infringement is easier to detect than, uh, than what's defamatory or what's privacy violation. Um, uh, so... I think that the, um, the, the, the Section 230 immunity makes more sense for the kind of stuff that it's not so easy to detect whether or not uh, it's illegal. In sum, Section 230 and what to do about it is a complex issue that includes different interpretations of the right to free speech. The duty of those in the social media industry the government, and the legislature. Section 230 has been incredibly important to the growth of the internet market. Arguably, social media giants such as Facebook and Twitter are partially the result of this legal shield. Efficiency and utilitarianist perspectives support different substantive and procedural solutions with regards to altering and repealing Section 230. For instance, efficiency arguments can be made to support keeping Section 230 as is. The obvious argument is that policing all of the content produced by such enormous user bases is a mammoth task that requires significant resources. Resources that up and coming companies may not possess. However, technological solutions such as machine learning may offer some remedy. On the other hand, from a utilitarianism perspective, it may be best to incentivize the platforms to regulate speech themselves. Although Section 230 has provided stable conditions and supported the growth of the internet, it is by no means perfect and has the potential to result in serious harm, as discussed before with respect to the Grindr and Ziran cases. Currently, Social media platforms have no legal duty to take down defamatory content, false representations of fat and identity, or even incitements of violence. 
As Professor Samuelson explained, lawsuits against such platforms for user content have largely been dismissed under Section 230, preventing plaintiffs from seeking remedy from economic, emotional, and other harms. So, what is the solution? As Professor Samuelson stated, the complexity of a solution requires iterative research before implementation because of the market sensitivity to regulation and the socio-economic importance of the industry. Furthermore, this dilemma is complicated by the balance of sustaining small and medium-sized firms while protecting against harmful content on extremely large platforms. Large platforms, such as Facebook, may support increased government regulation. However, this benefits them because it negatively impacts competition by introducing liabilities that smaller companies may not have the financial safeguards to withstand, ensuring their market dominance. Ultimately, the legislative bodies, the judicial branch, and members of the social media industry all have key roles to play. And a decision to replace or significantly alter Section 230 should only be made after due diligence and extensive studies to understand the probability of possible outcomes. Thank you for listening. The BTLJ podcast is brought to you by podcast editors Andy Zacharick and Haley Broughton. Our executive producers are BTLJ senior online content editors Alan Holder and Karna Kajar. BTLJ's editor-in-chief is Emily. If you have enjoyed our podcasts, please support us by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, write us at btljpodcasts at gmail.com. The information presented here does not constitute legal advice. This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information in this podcast is up to date as of March 28, 2021. The interview with Professor Samuelson took place on February 23, 2021.